2: This is Kion Wolf from Good Day, New Hampshire. I'm live on the scene of the Pumpkin Fest riots here in Keene. We've seen thousands of young men marauding through this ordinarily peaceful agricultural festival, and I've managed to persuade one of them to talk to me on camera. What's your name, young man?
0: (laughs) Am I on TV for real, bro?
2: Yes, we're live right now. Eagles suck! Eagles suck! Could you please stop that? By the way, do you mean the Philadelphia Eagles or the band?
0: (laughs) I'm not sure, bro. I'm like totally wasted. We did mad brewskis in the drive-up. Craig and Luke were, like, blacking out, bro. (laughs) We needed some caffeine for real, so we started crushing pizzas and shotgunning for locos, dude. But when we got here, the chicks were, like, totally ratchet, bro.
2: I'm not entirely sure I understood all that, but our cameras did capture you and your friends throwing bottles at each other and overturning that car over there and setting it on fire. (laughs) I
0: know, right? Pumpkin Fest rules, brah. Crack open the natty light and let's f*** some jack-o'-lanterns.
2: But... Why take something this innocent and lay waste to it?
0: (laughs) Because, brah, our traditional male roles have been rendered meaningless in a post-industrial economy. Women now hold 51.4 percent of managerial and professional jobs. They make up 54 percent of all accountants and hold about half of all banking and insurance jobs. Men dominate just two of the 15 job categories projected to grow the most over the next decade. Janitor and computer engineer. As a society, we have failed to make our expectations for men change to fit a swiftly mutating labor economy, bro.
2: So because of that, you're rioting at the Pumpkin Fest?
0: Really, bro? Hey, Brad and Jason are busting up a Chuck E. Cheese. I gotta go.
2: Wait up, bros. There you have it. Today on the show, experimental poet, Christian Book, implants poetry in the DNA of microorganisms. Michael Sean Winter analyzes the battle between the Pope and his bishops. And yes, we'll have a real report on the madness in Keene, New Hampshire. And now the man who wore sweatpants before sweatpants were cool, Colin McEnroe.
3: That does sound very bad. Actually, there really was. I mean, we're not making this up. There actually was this weekend. Uh, a lot of rioting in something called Pumpkin Fest in Keene, New Hampshire, where typically the goal there is to, um, I think they try to set the Guinness Book of World Records record every year for the most jack-o-lan- jack-o'-lanterns, and so they have like 38,000 illuminated jack-o'-lanterns. But for some reason or other, this time it attracted a lot of bros. Not that all bros are violent, but uh, a lot of violent bros, and they did. They had cars burning and bottle throwing and, and many arrests and rubber bullets and tear gas fired and all that kind of stuff. So we're in, and we'll try to get to the bottom of that and, and fail. Also, a little bit later in the show, Michael Sean Winter, who's our go-to guy, a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter, our go-to guy on all matters uh, affecting the Vatican. Uh, and we'll, so we'll talk to him about uh, the Synod, which you've probably picked up a little bit. This is a bishop's synod, uh, synod on, on family, uh, in, to which Pope Francis tried to introduce uh, some of his newer ideas with uh, only limited success. Anyway, all of that is to come. Um, This uh, interview uh, is one that I've been very excited about for a very long time, but also a little bit nervous about. I don't know if I'm Um, If I'm up to the task, this is going to challenge my brain a little bit. But I discovered Christian Book um, at the time we were doing, you may remember, I don't know, like six months ago, nine months ago, we did a show about Dada. Uh, And in the course of researching that show and just looking at various people, I discovered Christian Book and his work. And I especially discovered his Twitter feed, which, I mean, I really do mean this. I could follow only one Twitter feed uh, of anybody uh, on Twitter. I would follow Christian Book. Uh, and it's almost impossible to describe what the Twitter feed is like, but uh, there are a lot of allusions to a mysterious and ominous sounding they. And then links to this amazing stuff that you don't find anywhere else. So you read things like, they plan to build igloos of ice on worlds without atmospheres. They plan to search for alien artifacts in the solar system. They let you sacrifice your city to the astero- asteroid demigods. They create imaginary maps of cities that do not exist. They insist that they have found a drag- Particle of alien life in the stratosphere, and all of these are linked to um, to stories that I, I, as I say, I don't think I would find any other way. Uh, so this. Uh, the, the, the omnivorousness and the eclecticism of his intellect is irresistible. Uh, but there's so much more, too. He's the author of several books of poetry, including Crystallography and Unoya. I hope I'm saying that right. And he's uh, created artificial languages for the television shows uh, Amazon and Earth, The Final Conflict. He currently teaches at the University of Calgary. I have no idea where he is now because from his Twitter feed, I know he's also very peripatetic. So Christian Book, first of all, where are you checking in from?
4: I'm checking in from uh, the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada.
3: Right where you're supposed to be. Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's great news. You know, uh, there's so much we want to talk to you about, but I think maybe the, the thing to, to start with um, is the project uh, alluded to in the introduction, Xenotext. Um, this is your effort of many, many years now to encode poetry using the DNA of a microorganism to encode poetry that will show up. Uh, within uh, within a microorganism. I'm sure I'm doing a very poor job of explaining it Maybe for our listeners you can get, do a better job
4: Sure, no problem. I've been working for the last uh, 15 years on a single project That involves me writing a very short poem and then through a process of encipherment I translate this poem into a sequence of genetic nucleotides and then with the assistance of a laboratory I actually build this gene in the lab and then implant it into a bacterium, replacing part of its genome with my poem. So the organism, in effect, becomes the living embodiment of my text. Now, lots of artists and scientists have actually encoded information into the DNA of organisms, so uh, doing this particular activity is not very difficult. However, I've written my poem in such a way that the organism can actually read the gene sequence, and in response, it interprets it as a set of instructions, it reads my poem, And in response, it builds a protein whose sequence of amino acids is itself yet another completely different encipherment of a totally different poem. I am, in effect, uh, genetically engineering a bacterium, so it becomes not only an archive for storing my poem, but it also becomes a machine for writing a poem in response. And the punchline to this particular crazy project is that the host organism that I have selected for this project is an unkillable bacterium called Dinococcus radiodurans, an organism that can survive in all kinds of hostile environments. You can scorch it, wither it, freeze it, and it does not die. Uh, it can repair its own DNA so quickly that it does not mutate or evolve. It has not changed very much since it first appeared upon the planet Earth. And it can survive in the open vacuum of outer space. It can even survive a 1,000 times the dosage of gamma radiation that might instantly kill a human being. By putting my poem into this bacterium, I am, in effect, trying to write a book that might conceivably outlast terrestrial civilization. And the poem might, in fact, be on the planet Earth when the sun explodes. I am, in effect, trying to write a book that lasts forever. All right. that That is the
3: project in a nutshell. Uh, as uh, one of the uh, participants in our intro would have said, that is awesome, bro. Uh, and and uh, wh- we should say something about this particular bacterium because in choosing that one to try to rewrite the the, um, the DNA structure and get it to, to produce the, these proteins, you're choosing the hardest one, right? This was a relatively easy, I don't know, easy is the wrong word, but it was a reg- relatively doable thing with a more malleable bacterium like E. coli. But this, this organism that you're talking about right now, for all of the reasons that it's so durable is also incredibly difficult to mess with.
4: That's true. Uh, as it turns out, it is very hard to actually uh, uh, engineer this particular bacterium. Uh, it took me about uh, three years of concerted effort to actually get the entire project to work in E. coli as a kind of test run to demonstrate the proof of the uh, concept uh, so that I could gain uh, access to uh, the engineering of the uh... extremophile organism the very uh... Un, a difficult bacterium to kill um, i have yet to get it to work in uh... that new context uh... but i'm still uh... making an effort because i've only had uh... one or two opportunities to try uh... but i have managed to get the project to work in e coli i suppose that if i had simply promised uh... to um, get a bacterium any bacterium to uh... store a poem and write one in response I would probably be one of the most famous poets of my generation on the planet, but I promised too much. I promised uh, to put the chimp on the moon, not just into orbit. And as a consequence, I uh, really have condemned myself to a very long-term project trying to make it work.
3: We should say that, um, although you have the assistance of scientists in carrying out the final stage of this, you've really had to learn microbiology, biochemistry, and a whole bunch of other disciplines, not ordinarily the province of poets, correct?
4: Yes, that's true. Um, The scientists uh, with which I collaborate, uh, they can um, provide uh, support by uh, building things for me and by testing things for me, but they do not design anything and they do not solve problems. I have to be able to do that all myself. So I've had to teach myself a sufficient amount of molecular biochemistry so that I could uh, design a viable gene sequence, uh, do the... uh, simulations on supercomputers in order to see what the proteins might be like, uh, to be able to do the proteomic design and engineering. I've had to do all that myself, and I've had to troubleshoot the outcomes myself. I've had to f- come up with hypotheses for why they fail and figure out how to redesign uh, these constructs so that they can work. But the uh, laboratories, they, they are very helpful. They often provide me with uh, some advice about um, the outcomes. And uh, fortunately, I've managed to acquire a sufficient number of skills, albeit very dilettanteously, to do this specific uh, project.
3: When you when you work with laboratories about this, do they are they warm to and in understanding of the literary task that's involved here? I mean, these are two worlds that don't necessarily intersect or overlap that much, the world of really high-tech science and, and the world of... Uh, of poetry. Um, uh, How much of a conversation are you managing to have with the people on the technical side about the artistic side?
4: Well I've uh, had numerous conversations with many peers around the world and uh, invariably uh, the initial reaction is a bit uh, uh, skeptical, uh, but after a a conversation uh, the scientists generally warmed me. I uh, have been able to uh, impress uh, some proteomic engineers and uh, uh, biochemists uh, with my expertise. Now I cannot claim to uh you know have a sufficient amount of expertise to uh, be a doctorate in uh uh, genetic engineering, but I do have, I think, uh, a sufficient amount of uh, discursive immersion uh, in that uh, milieu so that I can carry on conversations with uh, my colleagues and uh, present myself as a credible collaborator. Uh, I mean, that's part of the, the exercise, I think, artistically, is to actually master these sets of skills that are otherwise outside the catechism of our literary training as poets.
3: Well, let's talk about that, too. Um, uh Part of this, as I understand it, is your desire really to um, expand poetry and, and art and literature beyond the restrictions uh, that, that that exist now. To, to, to see, in, in fact, if poetry and art can flourish in environments that wouldn't typically accommodate them. Um, why, is, there, is there a better, more concise, more articulate than I just gave answer to the why of this? Why devote 15 years of your life to this particular project?
4: Well, I'm... I think trying to become uh, the best 21st century poet that I can be uh... we live in a milieu that's extremely technological and uh, scientifically inflected science is probably the most important cultural activity that we now do as a species perhaps second only to the economy and undoubtedly science is going to have a tremendous impact upon our own cultural experience in the twenty-first century and yet poets uh... have not historically been very immersed in the vocabulary and discourse of science they haven't brought science into the world of poetry um, for example, uh, uh, there is no epic poem, say, for about the moon landing, and yet uh, that's probably the most epic adventure that any life form has undertaken on this planet in the entire history of the planet. And you can bet that if the uh, ancient Greeks had rode a trireme to the moon, there would be a 12-volume epic poem about that experience. But there isn't one yet uh, in the modern uh, era, and I think in part it's because uh, the technological experience of modern life has not found its way into poetry. Poets have not gone to enough effort, I think, to um, address uh, science and its cultural impact.
3: But it seems like the other part of this um, is to somehow or other break the paradigm of, I mean, what people think of as poetry is, I'm a poet, I'm sitting here, I get inspiration from God knows where, uh, words come into my head, I write those words down on paper, I change those words that I've written down on paper, I eventually come up with something that I'm going to call a poem, uh, I then read it uh, at a reading, I get it published uh, in a collection or in a magazine. So sort of that, that's what a poem, that's what poetry is. It seems to me the other thing that you're trying to do is, is snap that paradigm a little bit and say, well, no, a poem could come from another place. It could even be manufactured within a bacterium based on something else, some other kind of genetic information that the bacterium got. I mean, th- that poetry could flow from, from some other place than the one I just described.
4: Sure, exactly. Uh, I'm not the kind of poet who writes about uh, his personal experience uh, expressing uh, anecdotes about his uh, daily life. Uh, I'm the kind of poet who is curious about uh, the uh, limit cases of language, trying to figure out what language is capable of doing. I always joke that language is some kind of, you know, alien superorganism, and I'm uh, working in Area 51 trying to reverse engineer it for human purposes. You know, I'm trying to build anti-grav machines out of words. And I think that's, uh, you know, one of the jobs that a poet can do uh, is to figure out uh, different ways of using language so that we alter our perceptions about the world, we learn something new about how we express ourselves, and we uh, discover something unusual about uh, language. I'm trying to make discoveries, I think. I think probably at heart I might be a scientist, and uh, this is the only way in which I can express that uh, scientific interest is through these bizarre poetic exercises.
3: Well let's uh, talk about another um, experiment with language that's a little bit more accessible to the average person, uh, and that's Unoya. I hope I'm saying that correctly uh, This is uh, um uh, five chapters uh long poem. Each chapter uses only one of the vowels, uh, so the first chapter is only uh, letters that contain the vowel uh, only words that contain the vowel uh, a This has become an extraordinarily uh popular volume of p- poetry. Tell us a little bit more about it.
4: Sure. Well, Eunoia, spelled E-U-N-O-I-A, is the shortest word in English to contain all five vowels, and the word quite literally means beautiful thinking. It was a word coined by Aristotle to describe the state of mind uh, that you need to be in if you want to make a friend, and I think it's a very beautiful metaphor for poetry. Uh, The book is written in five chapters, each of which tells a story that's meaningful and uh, euphonic, sounds very beautiful when read aloud and yet uh, does so using only one of the five vowels. So in the first chapter, the only vowel that appears is the letter A. I can only use words like abracadabra, mat, cat, bat, you know, banana. Uh, And yet I still manage to say something intelligible uh, with this restriction. And then in the second chapter, I use only E, and I do this for each of the subsequent vowels. Uh, the book became uh, a national bestseller in Canada uh, when it was published and went on then to win uh, the Griffin Poetry Prize, uh, which is probably the most lucrative poetry prize uh, that you can win for a single volume of poetry. Uh, and it's gone on to uh, be a, an international sensation, uh, a bestselling book uh, in other countries around the world. Uh, it's certainly the book that has made my reputation as a poet. And I think that based upon uh, its uh, success, I've done my best to try and upstage it by working, of course, on something like the Xenotext. know um, is, a, I think, uh, a book that's designed to showcase how language uh, can thrive and endure, even under the most extreme duresses. I mean, it should be impossible, really, to say something meaningful with any poetic merit, uh, if you restrict yourself to one vowel, and yet the book has got uh, humor and wit and uh, some sublime moments of uh, of poetic uh, merit. it's a It's an exercise in showcasing the potential of language to uh, express um, uh, a sentiment even under these kinds of censorships and constraints.
3: Uh, we're kind of speed reading through Christian Book right now, and uh, as we f- uh, when we finish here, I do I sort of encourage you to follow him on Twitter, although, when I do this, all kinds of friends of mine and my coworkers are going to realize that all these really cool things I keep sharing with them, I'm stealing from Christian Book's uh, Twitter feed. I'm going to seem a, like a lot much, I'm going to seem less eclectic and, and interesting once people realize how derivative of Christian Book I am. But let's let's use our, our final minutes as we're kind of a speed reading through you to talk a little bit about the notion of conceptual literature, which is sort of in the conversation we're having right now. This is an aesthetic movement, which as I understand it anyway, it, 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 it's not maybe a perfect mirror image of what conceptual art is uh, uh, as opposed to traditional art, but kind of close, right? A a, a way to, to do literature in a way that once again kind of unyokes it from the established thinking about what literature is.
4: Sure. Uh, conceptual literature is uh, the first uh, avant-garde uh, poetic movement of the 21st century, and uh, I'm one of its co-founders with Kenneth Goldsmith and Darren Worsler. Uh Back in the late 90s, uh, the three of us had a conversation about uh, the future of poetry, trying to imagine what we might do in order to make an important contribution to uh, the art world. And uh, we decided that uh, there were four limit cases of writing that needed to be uh, discussed in more detail uh, at the dawn of the next millennium. And they included, among um, uh, others, these these four valences, I guess, Uh, one being uh, the uh, unreadable text uh, of illegible writing, the other being uh, the mannerist uh, text of really constrained writing, or uh, the um, kind of randomized uh, work of uh, robotic writing, writing done entirely by machines, and finally uh, the uh, ready-made writing of plagiarized texts. And uh, Kenneth Goldsmith, for example, became uh, quite uh, famous for uh, really popularizing the ability of poets to simply steal texts and reframe them as uh, new works of literary merit. In fact, uh, he uh, gained some notoriety for uh, actually being allowed to address uh, Barack Obama at the White House for a big poetry reading there. And all he read was uh, traffic reports (laughs) to the Mm -hmm. President of the United States, uh, doing so as though it were a work of uh, uh, poetry, as though it were a poetry reading. Uh, These are the kinds of works that uh, my uh, gang does, I guess, that we we try to explore uh, areas of writing that might otherwise be dismissed as not writing, as something that is unpoetic, uncreative, that lacks authorship, uh, and we're doing our best, I think, to show its potential to be poetic, to be perceived as something literary and uh, artistic.
3: Um, I I do. We will, I think, post a link to uh, something you did about what you call conceptualism in the wild, which is sort of back to those traffic reports. In other words, there's sort of a lot of things. uh, And they're not all verbal, too. I mean, uh, I'll just quote from from your piece. Nanex is a company that monitors robotic trading of stocks in which algorithms flood various indexes with thousands of transactions per millisecond only to vanish, vanish. Uh, Each flash crash caused by such a device creates a unique visual poem whose robotic writing notates the fibrillations in value. More than 50 percent of Internet activity is now non-human, implying perhaps that robots have already started to outpace our own digitized exchanges of text. And so and then you link to this thing. It's really I mean, it's very fascinating in a very Dadaist way that there are these words, but also these sort of visual um, visual Poems uh, or visual images that are suggestive of those words, or the or the the math behind those words, um, inviting us to think of a, a whole new concept of poetry. I don't think, once again, I don't think I did that justice. But.
4: No, you did a perfect uh, uh, explanation of it. The mapping of those uh, trades by robots, uh, the visualizations of those uh, trade activity, really do look uh, like artworks. They look like something uh, beautiful that we could easily imagine being exhibited in galleries. And yet they're the uh, side effect of something that's completely unartistic, something that has no relationship to literature or the art world, um, but it could be repackaged or reframed as though it were art, and I think it's, I think it's very uh, fascinating to imagine that uh, these robots might actually have some sort of cultural impact that we can barely understand. I think that that's why I'm interested in, in that particular uh uh, scenario that you've described.
3: All right. Robots and germs, uh, all part of the future uh, of art and literature. Christian Book, so great to have you on. Uh, we have uh, you know, another co- conceptual artist named Jonathan Keats on on a regular basis. We clearly have to give the two of you your own show. You oh, I admire a, Jonathan very much. Yeah, he's on hes on with us a lot. We'll have you on together to talk about God knew his what. But thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you very kindly. I appreciate uh, the support, Colin. All right. As
3: we go out, actually, we're going to hear Christian Book. Uh, I think he is uh, – oh, I have to look this up now. Oh, he's reading a Hugo Ball. Back when we did the Dada show, I also discovered some of these audios of Hugo ba- Ball. So this is Totenkladge by Hugo Ball. <laughs>
4: Zanga gago, Bragaga,
3: All right, uh, we're having a little bit of trouble uh, reaching one of our guests here. Um, Let me tell you a little bit more about what's going on. Also, let me just say that um, apropos, oh, he's Michael. Michael Sean is here. Apropos of the previous segment, if you're uh, confused uh, about anything that you heard, first of all, I would not blame you. Uh, You can email me. Collins, C-O-L-I-N at org. We do, we do like to find people who have really, really unusual ideas, really unusual visions for the world, and Christian Book is certainly one of those, uh, but I, we'd love to hear what you think about that, and then go to WNPR.org later today. We will post uh, as much supporting material as we possibly can to help you understand everything that you have heard, assuming that you're having any trouble at all, and you can follow Christian Book on Twitter. Uh, his name is actually spelled B-O-K, so it's Christian, just like Christian, B-O-K, uh, and he really is worth following on Twitter, even though it will wreck certain people's um, impressions of my own eclecticism, because I'm stealing it all from him. Joining us right now, uh, Michael Sean Winters is a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. Uh, He's our go-to guy whenever there's uh, something uh, going on in the news of, well, what are we doing? Oh, we lost him again. All right. So I'm going to put him on hold for a second. Let me just also tell you, uh, in just a little while, we're going to go to uh, Jared Goodell. Jared Goodell kind of emerged over the weekend as um, uh, a kind of a viral celebrity. Uh, and when I say that, uh, I mean that uh, he was... Uh, For some kind of I guess it's sort of like a local public access station. He was covering the Pumpkin Fest in Keene, New Hampshire, and suddenly uh, Keene, New Hampshire went crazy. Not really exactly right at the Pumpkin Fest, not at Ground Zero or Pumpkin Zero or whatever. But uh, surrounding him, there was suddenly real, you know, I mean, no other word for it, rioting. Uh, So uh, he began to cover that. Uh, the uh, organizers of the Pumpkin Fest tried to stop him from covering that. Uh, and the whole thing, as I say, kind of went viral. And it's, it, the Pumpkin Fest has turned into kind of an interesting conversation. Uh, there are people who are sort of saying, well, you know, that kind of thing, when it's done by young white males, doesn't really get covered the same way or talked about the same way or maybe even responded to by the police the same way as a much more peaceful style of demonstration in, in a place like Ferguson does. So it's par- part of a much larger conversation. We're going to go to Jared right now, actually, and uh, we'll juggle uh, Michael Sean Winter down to the bottom. This is why I, I like the Monday Scramble It. It, uh, I, I have to be challenged. So, Jared Goodell, I uh, was just describing uh, a few seconds ago uh, the video of you that's kind of gone a, a little bit viral. But um, I'll let you tell the story yourself. You you were there covering and spending, uh, I think, as you said, about 80 percent of your coverage day covering this very lovely idea, this Pumpkin Fest in Keene, New Hampshire, which attempts to, I think, set a record for the most lighted uh, uh, jack-o'-lanterns, like 38,000 jack-o'-lanterns or something. So, first of all, tell us about Pumpkin Fest and then tell us what happened.
1: Well, first of all, good afternoon, and thank you for having me on. Uh, the Pumpkin Festival is something that has been happening in Keene, New Hampshire, for uh, 24 years now. This is the 24th year, uh, and basically, uh, it's a day where Keene has transformed Uh, into a festival atmosphere. The uh, streets are lined with scaffolding. On those scaffolding uh, is uh, carved jack-o'-lanterns from people locally and from people who travel from around New England, around the country, and uh, quite honestly from around the world. Uh, And uh, as you mentioned just a few moments ago, uh, Keene holds the Guinness World Record for the most lit jack-o'-lanterns, that number 30,581. We took that record back from Boston in 2013 uh, and, and that's really what the Pumpkin Festival is all about. It's, it's, uh, it's carved, lit jack-o'-lanterns.
3: Um, Unfortunately, um, in the midst of all that this year, Keen unintentionally started to uh, set the Guinness record for uh, white male bros showing up uh, drunk and for no particular reason uh, that I can see or that I can understand anyway, starting to uh, engage in acts of mayhem. So maybe where you were standing, it was still sort of nice jack-o'-lanterns, but all around you, maybe, maybe you can kind of give us a sense of what was going on all around you.
1: Well, first, let me just say that this has been something that has been happening at the Pumpkin Festival for many years now. And over the past few years, it has really been coming to a head. I think this year, uh, a climax. These parties, these large gatherings... Uh, have been happening uh, increasingly in the past three years. In fact, it's even led uh, many people who live uh, in the downtown area of Keene uh, to request that the city council not license the Pumpkin Festival to happen uh, because their property becomes damaged, uh, because beer cans are strewn about their yards. Uh, But this year, uh, it really, like I said, it climaxed. Uh, the parties were bigger. There was more alcohol. They started earlier. In fact, parties started uh, as early as Thursday leading into Saturday. Um, uh, it, things got bigger this year and, and led to fires being set in the street. Uh, it led to uh, police officers being hurt. It led to SWAT teams being flown in via helicopter. Uh, this year was big. It, it, was, it was
3: huge. I mean, there was uh, not only SWAT teams flown in by helicopter, but at least by some of the reporting by the Boston Globe and others, there, were, there was tear gas deployed and, and maybe even rubber bullets as well, correct?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, well, uh, from what I understand, uh, the state police, New Hampshire state police, were using uh, paintball-like guns to shoot what are called pepper balls into the crowds. Uh, Pepper uh, spray was also used uh, quite a bit uh, to help disperse the crowds. Uh, State police helicopters were also brought in uh, when it got dark to shine light on the large crowds uh, so that uh, police on the ground could see. Uh, And they also had a loudspeaker uh, ordering crowds to disperse or be arrested.
3: I you know, there's a sort of, uh, um, there are many ironies in all this. Well, one of them is that uh, at the time of Ferguson, uh, there was a lot of coverage of the fact. Uh, I don't know whether you've picked up on this yet or not, Jared. I would imagine your last 48 hours have been pretty chaotic. But there was a lot of coverage uh, of uh, smaller towns that had acquired heavily armored military vehicles uh, that could be used for crowd control, as was the case in in Ferguson. And one of the ones that was constantly cited was Keane and two different comedians, John Oliver and Stephen Colbert brought up keen as, uh, as a, a comedic example of a place that oh, absolutely needed an armored vehicle because after all they have this pumpkin fest which seemed like a very funny thing to be bringing up uh, back in the uh, uh, you know in, in september uh, but uh, in fact or august or whenever that was uh, and, but in fact uh, what they didn't understand was as you were saying that there there actually has been some not that it, not that it would necessarily warrant the use of a, a military heavily armor clad vehicle but there has been some building up uh, around Pumpkin Fest well yeah go ahead
1: Uh, well you're correct that uh, you know that that the city of Keene did acquire a what is known as a Bearcat armored vehicle from the Department of Homeland Security Uh, that was done uh, I believe two years ago now and as you mentioned uh, Pumpkin Festival riots uh, were cited the unrest at Pumpkin Festival was cited as a a reason for needing that armored vehicle Um, a lot of people uh, In Keene, Keene is a uh, home of the Free Keene Libertarian Movement, the Free Staters, they're also known as. Uh, And a lot of people spoke out against Keene acquiring this vehicle uh, because they felt it militarized the police. Now, to the best of my knowledge, um, the Bearcat was not used this past Saturday night at Pumpkin Festival. Again, uh, that's... To the best of my knowledge, it, it may have in fact been used. Uh, but again, I, I do not have any reports that uh, the Bearcat was brought out.
3: Yeah, no, I, I haven't had any reports, uh, read any reports about that either. So you were there. I mean, one of the things that kind of went a little bit viral, viral around this was the fact that you were there trying to do your broadcast. The organizer of the, the Pumpkin Fest um, was um, essentially trying to silence you, maybe even take your mic away from you, threatening to pull the plug on you. What was going on there? Well, uh, first, let me just
1: say that this broadcast was happening on a local access television station, a cable local access television station. I was an independent producer. Um, I have grown up in Keene, uh, the Pumpkin Festival. Started a year before I was born. Uh, So I really wanted to bring the magic of Pumpkin Festival into the homes of viewers uh, in the Monadnock region, in the Keene area on Cheshire TV. Uh, And so I invested several thousand of my own dollars into this broadcast. Uh, You know, I hired professional people uh, to help co host, uh, to help produce. you know, and, and I asked Ruth Sterling, and you know, I told her about what my plans were. I asked her for a location within the footprint. Uh, she granted that. But there was never any re- reciprocal uh, agreement that, you know, you give me a space uh, on the footprint, and I will uh, talk all good about the Pumpkin Festival. Now, as I just mentioned a few moments ago, the Pumpkin Festival, uh, near and dear to my heart. Look, I've grown up in Keene. I've been going to the Keene Pumpkin Festival for for quite a few years now, uh, for my entire life, really. Uh And and I talked about good. I would say over the eight hours that we were on the air, 90% of what we discussed was the good. We were talking to costumed uh, kids on the street. We were talking to people who came uh, from across the United States. We were asking people how many pumpkins they brought uh, and how long they had been coming to the pumpkin festival. But uh, as anyone would do, we also talked about the bad. And, again, this was uh, 10% of our entire eight-hour broadcast was the bad. We talked about the riots in the past. We talked about uh, many uh, Keene residents in the downtown area not wanting Pumpkin Festival to happen because it disrupts their neighborhoods uh, in such a great way uh, because of the college riots. We talked about those things, and at the time when Ruth Sterling stormed onto the hot TV set, that live TV set, I was reading a statement from Keene State College president Ann Hewitt. This was the first statement that had come out of the college, uh, and it had just come into my phone. Uh, I was literally reading it off of my phone. At that point uh and ruth sterling stormed onto the set she stood next to the camera operator on the specific camera uh that was uh, uh capturing me um i threw to a break as soon as i was done reading the statement because i could see that uh, ruth was mad at me she was giving me the cutthroat uh, gesture uh, so i walked over to her and she told me that she was going to pull the plug on the broadcast Uh, and that I need to stop talking about the bad things and start talking about the good things because I was, quote, alarming people uh, and inciting people. Uh, I uh, had a producer in my ear telling me we were going back on air in 15 seconds. Uh, So I told Ruth, we're going back on air in 15 seconds. Please don't make a fool of yourself on live TV. As you see, we went live. Uh, and the rest is history. Yeah, and
3: we, uh, we will we will share that video uh, at wnpr.org. We'll be tweeting it uh, also. Uh, you did show a lot of uh, calm under pressure for a young man, uh, Jared Goodell. Um, let me just ask you one last question, and this isn't a question that you necessarily ha- have to have an answer to, but, I mean, I think people look at something like this and they think, well, I mean, it really does seem like a pretty innocent undertaking, pumpkin-fest. I mean, it's almost ludicrously uh, agrarian and innocent-sounding, and yet this other thing thing happened, you know, and what really was pretty bad with at least one overturned car. And as we say, this huge deployment of police and rioting and bottle throwing. Do you, I don't know, has any explanation that makes any sense to you been floated by you as to why such a thing would happen in, in an environment like that one?
1: Are you asking about the riots?
3: Yeah, the riots. Uh, are... Like, yeah, yeah, the riots. Why, why do you think there was rioting at, at Pumpkin Fest?
1: Look, uh, the truth is, when you get, you know, 5,000 you know, inebriated college-age students together who have been drinking for 72 hours straight. When you get people into large crowds, um, you know there is bound to be uh, some, some craziness that happens, and I think that is what happened. I think when the police uh, get involved, uh, that can some Sometimes escalate the situation. I'm not saying that the Keene Police or the New Hampshire State Police or any other agencies escalated the situation. However, uh, however, uh, I feel that uh, sometimes when the police uh, put shin guards on, when they put hard hats on, when they have uh, long rifles out uh, slung over their shoulders, uh, that can sometimes um, that can escalate the situation. And, and again, I'm not saying that, that that is what happened here because I was not down. And, Witnessing this stuff happen live, uh, but I suspect that there's a possibility that that played a role. But certainly uh, Keene State College students who invited, uh, you know, five, ten friends apiece up and who were drinking all weekend long certainly, I think, are the the people to blame for the rioting and for the destruction that occurred on Pumpkin Festival.
3: All right. You can learn more about Jared Goodell. His Twitter feed is Jared Goodell. That's uh, two O's, one D, and two L's. Uh, we're naming him our Millennial of the Week. You know, I'm always picking on Millennials here. He's a great Millennial. He's uh, uh, got a lot of uh, he showed a lot of calm under pressure in this situation. All right, so uh, we're, we're going to come back with the previously promised uh, analysis uh, of what went on in the Synod of Bishops uh, with Michael Shaw and Winter.
2: If Pope Francis really wants to change the positions of all these bishops, he's overlooking an important tool, campaign commercials. Come on, let your mind run wild. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Jackie Filson and Josh Naleya. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ben Affleck. For show pages, articles, and the Faith Middleton Show staff's recipe for pumpkin souffle cooked on an overturned car on fire, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, we review this year's campaign commercials. And now, back to Colin.
3: All right. Uh, Michael Sean Winters uh, writes for the National Catholic Reporter, uh, which is a, an independent news source on Catholic affairs. Um, you may have been aware, uh, in the midst of all the other news uh, of the last few days, of a debate going on within the, the um The highest uh, uh, reaches of the church. Uh, It's a debate uh, about the family. It's a debate uh, about uh, gay uh, Catholics and gay marriage. It's a debate about how divorced Catholics are are treated uh, within the church and within the liturgy of the church. Um, So with that, I'm going to hand off the baton. uh, And Michael Sean Winters, uh, just in a nutshell, uh, what was the Synod of Bishops uh, debating and, and what did they wind up saying about it?
5: Well, this is the first of two synods, and the job of this synod was to address the state of the question. And the question is, uh, how does the Church care for families uh, in, in the context of evangelization, of, of what the Church is about, of spreading on the faith and passing it on generation to generation? As as you mentioned, the, the hot-button issues were uh, those families that are irregular, uh, so divorced and remarried families, uh gay families these were the the two that seemed to be the most contentious issues there um, They did not come to any you know real agreement uh in terms of what has to be done, but that's actually the task of the next synod um what what caused some controversy was midway through this last synod, which was two weeks. So halfway through, there was an interim draft released that was pretty far ahead of where the, most of the bishops were—a little bit too progressive—and so they dialed some of that back. Uh, but clearly, the majority of the synod fathers are looking for uh, some different avenues for, for pursuing uh, for pursuing pastoral, what we call pastoral practice. How do you actually care for families, and especially those families that are in these situations? Uh, that are irregular.
3: Now, you know, there's uh, a couple of different ways you can look at something uh, like this, and the National Catholic Reporter, in its uh, reporting and its analysis of this, is, you know, has tended to emphasize the idea that that there is change. It's it's uh, done within the rubric of something called graduality. You know, there, these conversations are going on; they're meant to go on. Not everybody in the church, not every bishop, obviously from every part of the world, is on the same page. But there's a really good process in place for having this conversation and for moving forward, uh, and, and so that that's, that's a good thing and, and it's sort of leading really nothing to fear or be worried about. Now, the more dire way of looking at this is that it really did seem at times, and uh, feel free to disabuse me of this, but I'll just sort of give you the dire, cynical way of looking at this. It really did seem like quite a bit of push and pull going on between Pope Francis, who obviously does have a pretty progressive view of some of these questions, and some of the people who, ha- who have more traditional points of view, and, and it seemed even though there as though there were a locking of horns between Pope Francis and Cardinal Raymond Burke, who's the, the head of the Vatican Supreme Court, or he was the Vatican Supreme Court, he appears to have been cashiered uh, maybe as a result of the fact that he really did push back against that first document, saying it's just way too progressive, it's way too revolutionary, it's way ahead of, uh, of, of where we are as, as a church, and that this is, that. The, so this the, the, the more dire l- way of viewing this is, this is a church having a very hard conversation right now, in which there's a pretty high level of discomfort, particularly among the traditional tra- traditionalists, looking at what Pope Francis wants to do. I don't know, I respond to that a little bit.
5: I, I think you're, 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 you're absolutely right. Uh, this is a conversation the Church is having as a family. And uh, I think this is, these are conversations that every family actually has with their teenagers, which is, you know, how do we hold out for our children? Uh, what we want them to aspire to. How do we uh reprimand them when we think they err, how do we protect them from influences that will harm them, and yet all the while making sure that they we know that they love them. And so uh you know, my colleague Tom Reese said, you know, the, the balance here is is the love of a mother with the necessity of being a teacher. And how do you balance those two? This is not uncommon for, again, anybody who has teenagers. Um so I think this is the, what they're they're trying to get their head around. I, I would point out, though, I think there are some distinctions between the people who are suspicious of the what we can call the Pope Francis agenda. Uh, certainly you have, uh, especially from Africa, bishops from very traditional societies who are very worried they, they, Those soci- those traditional families are under pressure for socioeconomic reasons and a host of other things, and they think if you pull one brick out of the wall, the whole wall is going to fall apart. That is somewhat different from Cardinal Burke, who is, you know, from the United States originally. Um and he just strikes me as a Jansenist. He's one of these, you know, uh people who just thinks, you know, it takes a certain pride in telling other people to suck it up. And uh that the more the, the gospel is presented in this kind of tough love, uh that's better for the church. Um, I don't see it that way. I think it's pretty obvious Pope Francis doesn't see it that way. And as you noted, uh, uh, Cardinal Burke is about to be cashiered out of his his uh, job of influence and sent to a, a very minuscule job. Although that just so you know, that decision was made before the
3: Senate. Um, you know, it seemed as though Pope Francis, in his response to all this, was trying to um, take a, a healing tone and a tone of, of equilibrium. And and even he sort of had he sort of seemed to, if I understood everything that I read, gently chide the traditionalists, but also gently chide people who I, I would have assumed was, were pretty much on the same page with him, right? That, you know, that you can go too far uh, in, in either way. You can go too far with your zeal for reform. Uh, and you can go too far in your uh, adherence uh, to, to, to tradition. Was that just kind of a way of calming the waters at the end? He, he seemed to be treating both sides kind of equally, even though everybody knows he's on one side rather than the other.
5: Oh, well, that's his job. I mean, the job of of the Pope is to ensure the unity of the Church and the fidelity to the tradition. So, and he had this great line that was actually not in the published text, where he said, you know, the Pope is the guarantor of the fidelity and unity of the Church. Well, I'm the Pope, and here I am. Uh, You know, he often goes off text. And, And yes, I think it's clear where his sympathies lie, But his job as Pope is to bring everyone together, or at least everyone that you possibly can bring together. You know, at the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, uh, every document was voted on, and very few, none of them passed unanimously. Uh, But you wanted to get it where you had, you know, votes of, you know, 1,685 to 12. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay. You
5: know, so this is what is the challenge looking toward next year, Synod. How do we formulate uh, a response to to the situation of, of families? Uh, that's going to gather those kind of overwhelming majorities. So whatever his personal sympathies, uh, I, I think his job is to keep everyone together. The only other thing I would add there is uh, this is an astute old Jesuit. And what he, uh, when he called out both sides, clearly what he was calling them out for is, look, you don't come to this issue with an agenda. You come to this to listen to each other, and together we're going to figure out how to move forward. Um, and I think that's the problem on both sides: is you you see these kind of external agendas being put on like checklists, and that's just not that's not going to be conducive to a fruitful dialogue, and 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 bringing the church together.
3: Um, You know, the hazard in all this, and I'm sure it's a hazard that worries you, Michael Sean Witters, is that, you know, here's the Roman Catholic Church is in many ways one of the great engines for conversations about social justice, conversations about poverty and inequality. And it's a it's an engine that can drive a global conversation about these topics. And so it seems kind of a shame in some ways to see the church. Getting stuck in a highly publicized conflict uh, uh, about sex roles and, and about gender, um, that seems like maybe you know not not even the place that Pope Francis ultimately wants to take the church
5: I think that's somewhat true, except as the message from the Senate Fathers made clear, they're acutely aware of the socioeconomic pressures on the family that you know if if you're trying to raise a family in excruciating poverty. Uh, that's very hard to do. And I think they're also very suspicious of the way we in the absolute West have this consumer society uh, where if you want to sell a new product, you, you say, well, new, new, new. Um, and that that is not conducive uh, to the, the formation of conscience is capable of, of saying I do in a marriage ceremony and meaning what the Church means, that, hey, this is forever. So I, I wouldn't overstate the distinction between uh, what we call the kind of pelvic theology issues mm-hmm. uh, and and the social justice issues. There's clearly a link. I mean, you know, you, you, there's reams of social science data that will will show you that families families that are intact, where the children are living with uh, both biological parents, uh, do a lot better. And and broken families, uh, inclined toward poverty and, and other social dysfunction. So, I, I wouldn't want to draw too clean of a line between those.
3: I mean, we only have about a minute left. I don't know whether you saw, there was a Frank Bruni piece in the New York Times a week or two ago, just sort of saying, well, for a lot of Catholics, they feel like some of those pelvic issues are deal breakers in ways that almost nothing else is. You know, uh, he had one theologian saying, could I go and take communion? And, you know, if I, were a, if I were in favor of the death penalty, even though the teaching of the church is very different. Of course I could. and Nobody would even ask a question about it. And, and that in some ways, these these issues, I, I love the term pelvic theology, they just feel like they're bigger deal-breakers than they need to be. Unfortunately, you only have about 45 seconds to speak to that.
5: You know, unfortunately, you know, this is this is the case we have to get away from this, which is, you know, Mia Farrow put out a tweet, oh, come join the Episcopalians, we have gay clergy, we have, you know, female clergy, all this kind of stuff. And as a Catholic, I would say yes, but you don't have the apostolic succession, you don't have the real presence of Christ to the Eucharist, the things that I really care about. And so you're on to something, and I think that's part of Francis's bigger agenda is— You know, church teaching is great, but it has to serve the gospel. Moral theology is great, but it has to serve the gospel. And as pastors, how do you preach the gospel in the beginning of the 21st century to families who are facing challenges that were not faced in previous times?
3: All right. Michael Sean Winter, so great to talk to you. I'm going to get email from Episcopalians who do think they have an apostolic succession. Uh, But I'll handle those. I'll handle those. (laughs) I'll blame it all on you. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Great, Colin. Take care. All right. Michael Sean Winters from the National Catholic Reporter. We would never dream of talking about an issue like that one if we couldn't get Michael Sean aboard with us. Um, thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. Tomorrow's show is campaign commercials. Really, you want more of them, right? You want to hear them on the radio. You want people talking about them. We've got some of our advertising gurus plus crusading journalists, uh, Matt Kaufman, coming in to uh, talk about the state of campaign commercials, the local races, the ones you've been seeing uh, cluttering your own TV feed. Slash, 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 slash.
2: I'm just going to light the candle, and there you have it, my first jack-o-lantern. Hey, what the... This one is for pay inequality for women. Close the gender gap, yeah!